the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by V Plus, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're talking with Alex Fennick, Vice President and Landscape Architect from EDSA in Florida, on his role as a landscape architect and how and why landscape architects, urban designers, and urban planners should focus on the spaces in between destinations and how to make them as beneficial as possible to people's physical and mental well-being. Just jumping in here to let you know that since we recorded this episode, Alex Fennick has now departed EDSA. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you very much. Alex, can you give us uh, a listeners a brief biography in, in about one minute? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a vice president at EDSA in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, we're an international planning and landscape architecture firm um, that kind of works all over the globe. I've been here since 2015, and I'm also the immediate past president of the American Society of Landscape Architects, which is our, uh, our professional organization here in the United States. Um, Florida has the third largest chapter in the country with about 650 members and growing. Um, I've had a really great opportunity to work on projects all over the globe, um, from China to the Middle East, but I've really spent the better part of my career focusing on U.S. domestic work as well as work in the Caribbean. Um, I graduated from Michigan State University in uh, 2011. That, that's an awful lot in a short time, Alex. And, and why landscape architecture? What, what uh, attracted you to the profession? It, it really all started uh, with a trip to the Grand Canyon when I was 18. Um, I knew from that point, standing on the South Rim in Arizona, that that's what I wanted to do. And it sounds weird because landscape architects didn't create the Grand Canyon, but it was that sense of place in the outdoor environment that really kind of, I was drawn to. And when I started to think about, you know, the urban streetscapes and pocket parks of our cities and some of the rural landscapes, you know, in suburbia on the countryside, it, it really just kind of inspired me that something that I wanted to do, you know, making memories for kids and families. Um, and it's also actually transposed into me really kind of finding a passion for leadership and mentorship and um, mentoring, you know, staff and, and some of my teammates uh, along the way. Now, Alex, can you please describe your, your current position? Is it being, being vice president, obviously that's a fairly big role. Is it sort of 50, 50 management and design? Yes, it is. Yeah. My, my role with the Southeast Caribbean team, again, that's kind of the market that I'm, I'm really focused on here at EDSA uh, really focuses on project management as well as helping to manage, you know, the team, uh, their time, their project allocations, as well as diving into the design on several uh, projects, both large and small in scale. Uh, Alex, before we get into some of your recent projects and thoughts about, you know, where landscape architecture is heading, can we talk of some of the misconceptions about the profession? Um, Tough question, I hope not for you, but what, what do people get wrong about when they think about landscape architecture? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the biggest, the biggest misconception about landscape architecture um, is really focusing on the landscape part. You know, what comes with that is this notion that we're landscape 
roofers or we mow lawns for a living, um, maintain properties, all of which are respectable professions. You know, one of the things I hear all the time, you know, it makes sense that you live in this warm climate, you know, in, in the southeastern United States and in Florida. So I bet you're, you're busy all year round. And I always have to kind of go back and, um, you know, kind of explain to them what landscape architecture is. You know, as landscape architects, we're constantly battling educating others, our clients, um, politicians, and advocating for the growth and awareness of our profession. Are there any new projects you start, say a, re a rejuvenation project or something like that, when you first see the site and you think this is going to be really hard, how do you then proceed from that point? Renovation projects in particular are extremely challenging. Um, they're, they're definitely more budget driven um, beyond that of a typical new project. You know, I've kind of done enough of them recently, um, especially in kind of this, this uh, influx of, of renovation projects that we're having here in, in the United States. Um, it's extremely important to get some of those accurate detail on the topography survey uh, that it would include, you know, adjacent site conditions, um, underground utilities. You know, I'm, I'm working on a project in the, in the Orlando area right now where um, we're, we're even figuring it out as we keep working and collaborating with our architect and our civil engineer and our structural engineer. And, and we're finding that we don't have enough information to, to make a call or to, to accurately depict something on our drawings. And, and when you have a new project um, and it's kind of an open slate, uh, it seems to go a little bit more efficiently um, than when you're kind of trying to match up against uh, adjacent, you know, an adjacent sidewalk or an adjacent building or something that's existing in the landscape. Alex, sometimes clients, and I know this because I work in a landscape architecture company as well, um, clients come to us wanting trees or more trees or a replica of what they've seen in a different project elsewhere. How do you explain your concept, your unique concept, and then steer the client to what might be a more embracing outcome? You know, at, at EDSA, you know, we, we strive to design transformative and inspiring places that are environmentally responsible. And, you know, we have to do so while managing our clients' expectations. I think every site is unique. Um, the environment and, and the microclimate that it, it has really definitely yield different opportunities for different types and sizes and quantities of plants, specifically uh, about trees. You know, embedding this the site in the history of place, um, looking a little bit more at the macro climate, um, making sure that we're, you know, looking at some of the local influences that, that impact the site are all things that play a role in, in being able to, um, you know, pull off a design and pull off some of our clients' needs. I think that as you, as you steer the client and what they want, um, you also have to be able to walk them along the journey uh, of embracing them, the realistic uh, expectations and kind of constraints and opportunities that the, that the site um, will, will provide and allow us to work with. I guess as well, that probably goes back to that comment you made earlier about educating the client and educating people as to what landscape architecture is and what the benefits and um, disbenefits of it might be. So educating them around um, around those elements and then as you say, steering them towards what might be um, site relevant or site specific. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it takes longer than other times, doesn't it, Alex, to <laughs> educate clients and 
uh, particularly when they've seen something they really like in a magazine or something. But um, it sure does. We've got to be patient sometimes. But landscape architecture, uh, in many instances, Alex, is about pedestrian places and connections. How about the broader urban settings, uh, the landscaping in the public domain, or in a broader sense, boulevards and highways? We, we've had some fantastic landscaping here uh, in Victoria, along freeways, for example. And uh, that's where a lot of the public spend their time and the ability to transform those places. Any Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I feel lucky and fortunate enough to have worked on both, you know, smaller, uh, smaller user group scales to some of the big, um, you know, core design uh, principle driven projects. And I really do think that, you know, form always has to follow function. Landscape architecture really is looking at things through a holistic design lens um, as we approach things in the outdoors. And you know, everything in our outdoor environment, I always tell people, should have the influence of a landscape architect. And you're right, Peter, the perception is that we tend to focus on more of this intimate scale, uh, intimate people scale. And sometimes um, we as landscape architects have to take a step back and look at some of these broader spaces to make sure that there's a, a connection and a cadence between not only the adjacent spaces that we're looking at with planting and hardscape, signage and site symmetry, um, you know, also making sure that we're designing for a multi-generational experience. A great example of this, is, as you mentioned, is, you know, kind of the boulevards and the streetscapes of our urban and suburban um, footprints that we, that we drive down, that we run down, that we bike down. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of collaboration with our consultant team, highway engineers, civil engineers, um, for this specific example to work and really be looked at, you know, in kind of a um, a connection that that is uh, well received and welcomed and inviting to to people. I think the difficult thing with landscape architecture as well that um, that that we certainly find is that when landscape architecture is done really well, you don't notice the place so much in, in the sense that you know if you if you're driving down a new freeway. If the landscape architecture is done really well, you go, oh, this is this is a pleasant place, but you sort of you pass through it without too much thought, other than this is a nice place or this is a nice environment. As opposed to, um, you know, if it's done really badly, you you can drive down it and say, oh, this is this is awful. This is a this is a terrible freeway. This is a terrible environment. But it, it do you know what I'm trying to say? That it's it's interesting that when it's done well, it's very subtle. You, you absolutely hit on, <clears throat> you absolutely hit on um, a very key point. And I think that as you not only look at kind of the busier, uh, highly, highly used spaces, but that you also see some of that in some of the transition spaces that, you know, kind of connect the two. Mm. Um, the spaces between, you know, that that uh, it, that also need a focus, um, a subtle, a subtle, uh, someone subtly paying attention to it, um, opportunities to kind of offer the unexpected and give users this this sense of knowing that it's right, but not knowing that it's right. Um, yeah. You know, we we uh, we just recently did another project where um, it was this, uh, you know. Uh, a walkway project um, through this grove of trees. And it seems simple in nature, but one of the things that really made it special was 
the lighting. Um, and I actually traveled to the site, met with the lighting engineer. We went out there at 10 o'clock with, with wrenches and we were adjusting the lights to get them to hit the canopy of the tree and the bark of the tree just right. And probably nobody would know the difference except subtly, I think in the back of their mind, they could tell that maybe something was a little unique and special about the place. Yeah, definitely. And I think that goes to that point um, that you know, I mentioned in the intro that we're going to talk about today is about how you create those physical environments for people to actually pause and connect and, and observe along their journey. Um, why do you think it's important for landscape architecture and design to play that role? You know, right now we're living in this, this time of great acceleration. It's, it's where everyone's, you know, the the daily hustle of our lives, we, we have to find time to intertwine it with moments that benefit our well-being. You know, I think one thing that the, the COVID pandemic has provided a lot of people is this renewed appreciation for the outdoors. And as landscape architects, we really have an opportunity to interject these small interventions um, in our designs that really kind of help people to stop and smell the roses a little bit. Um, you know, it's these in-between in spaces that we encounter that we can start to engage people's senses, um, rediscover their surroundings. And I think, you know, what's really special for me is a lot of people say that the journey is the best part of the destination. <clears throat> and so it's, it's recognizing that, you know, everything we do and everything that people interact with um, is an important part of that journey. And this is where I really think landscape architecture plays a pivotal role in, you know, taking the connection and what would otherwise be considered passive spaces um, and, and putting a little bit more of a people-centric lens on. Um, and we do this probably a little bit more than civil engineers do, and it's no dig on civil engineers. But you know, while an engineer might create a, a functional and well-designed physical environment for people to get from point A to point B, a lot of times it'll lack that kind of place-making attribute that a landscape architect you know, really has the ability to, to interject. Things like wayfinding or intentional views, um, art installations, specific landscape elements. Um, I think those are things that we can do to kind of help, you know, offer the unexpected and, and create, really create special places. Alex, you also touch on just the, um, the benefits to people in terms of uh, experiencing nature, in, in terms of their well-being. Their mental well-being. I, I think there's been plenty of studies that show people walking in a green space for 20 minutes is uh, has the same benefit or the same effect as uh, antidepressant tablets. Um, that that sense of connection and, and well-being with greenery. Any thoughts on that? I think we've we've definitely um, placed a greater emphasis on the value of outdoor spaces. Um, you know, places to relax, uh, exercise, meet, you know, just, just interact with people. And there's something, there's something about green and there's something about lushness and there's something about landscape, you know, that, that really starts to kind of um, hone in on uh, certain senses that people have, you know, um, sight, aesthetics, um, you know, we've always seen this as a value uh, as landscape architects. And I think that, you know, society is finally catching on um, and we're, we're kind of at the forefront of that and helping, helping people to, you know, embrace that and embody 
uh, what the landscape has to offer. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And Alex, are there particular landscape architectural trends that you're seeing at the moment or that perhaps you've seen over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of just touched on it a little bit, you know, with just, uh, and, and I will say that I think depending on, you know, landscape architecture is a very broad profession. It's a very broad industry. Um, and depending on the niche that um, a landscape architect may be, you know, invested in, I, I do believe that, that that may change this response. You may ask five other landscape architects and they may all give you a different answer. But for 100%. me... It's the same in planning, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, but, you know, kind of talking talking through this, you know, collaborating with my team here at EDSA. And, you know, I, I really do think that, you know, a, a very big trend is this great emphasis on the outdoor spaces that we talked about and, and how we're playing an instrumental role in that. Um, temporary spaces, this, you know, this idea of pop-up markets or wharfs or, you know, little container uh, container markets where there's restaurants and, and bars and, and that are popping up all over the globe. Um, even seeing how sometimes those temporary spaces are so successful and so popular that they they remain in place and they become permanent. Um, designing in three dimension uh, and augmented reality, you know, allowing you to you know put a headpiece on your client. And, and have them look around and, and be able to truly manage their expectations and see the site and see their, see their project before we ever break ground is something that's truly remarkable. I think it you know, streamlines efficiency. There's, there's definite you know, cost implications to the positive um, and definitely like, like I said, manages their expectations. And then you know, maybe the fourth thing that I would just bring up is this idea of um, using online and application-based you know, metric tracking to really kind of help inform our design process, um, you know, from master planning to detailed design and sustainability um, are all trends that, you know, EDSA is, is aware of, um, you know, my counterparts in the landscape and in architecture industry are aware of, and that we're all, we're all kind of trying to stay on the forefront of those things. Just picking up on one of the things you said there, Alex, um, about the temporary spaces and pop-up spaces, obviously, um, that's, you know, a trend that we're seeing worldwide at the moment, particularly post-COVID. Um, I, I think what I've really noticed, particularly in Australia, is that those spaces have been uh, done really well. And as you say, a lot of them are being carried over to be permanent spaces because they've been so successful. But I feel like the reason that that is, is because we have put a greater emphasis on the landscape component of those spaces, which you know, pre-COVID, I don't think landscape played such a big role. Do you think the the value of landscaping in those spaces um, or maybe just landscaping generally um, has been enhanced over that time and therefore we're going to see more of that? I do. Um, 
I absolutely do. Um, and I think that it goes beyond the landscape to some degree. I, I, you know, landscape architects really kind of have an influence on the materiality, um, you know, a lot of the aesthetic, a lot of the, the really the, the, the true sense of the place. Um, and I think that beyond just the landscape, the sense of place is, is being valued. And it maybe goes back just to a little bit of that subtlety. People are in those spaces and don't know why it's great, but they like it and they like yeah, being there. So true. Yeah. Uh, Alex, it's a bit of a strange question for you, but uh, do you derive inspiration from, from areas outside the profession that maybe uh, influence your directions or you gain inspiration from? I do. I, I, um, I travel a lot and I, and I, I seek a tremendous amount of inspiration from my travels and, and the places that I visit. Um, it's, it's kind of hard not to be inspired by the landscape and by landscape architecture when it's all around us. You know, everywhere we go, um, it's, it's, in, it's there. Um, and, it's, and it's a part of our, it's a part of our way of life. Um, and a, a lot of people, that's, that's really kind of the best way to explain it to people is that just take a look around and, and a landscape architect likely had something to do with the park that you're in or the urban plaza that you're in or the boulevard that you're driving down. And so I, I'm constantly taking photos of, of, of examples of way to, ways to do things and not to do things, I'm studying what works and doesn't work. Um, and so I, I, travel is, is, a, is a priceless tool uh, in our industry. I wanted to ask you as well about how different groups experience different places. Obviously, um, different age groups in particular take, take away different things from, from places. Thinking about children, I know there's been a lot of research over recent years into um, child-friendly cities and those sorts of concepts. Um, what are your thoughts around how those different user groups experience spaces? And are we designing, I guess, across the lifespan or are we currently um, designing only for certain age groups? That's a great question. Um, you know, landscape architects, I think, always have to have a multi-generational approach um, as we dive into projects, both big and small. Uh, yeah, I, again, I talked about the broadness of our profession and, you know, the, the different scales that we work at. And when I think about landscape architecture and bigger, larger scale places that are kind of more public in nature, you know, the you go to a national park here in the United States to one of their welcome centers, or you go to Central Park in New York City, or you go to the Washington, D.C. National Mall here in the United States you can kind of start to see a little bit more of a universal experience. You know, it may, it may seem, um, it may seem more the same level of approachability from an infant to, you know, uh, an elderly person, but it says you kind of dive into that granular or more human scale. I think that landscape architecture really takes on an individual kind of a unique approach um, to maybe start focusing in on the attention um, the imagination and response to various and specific user groups, like you mentioned with children. I, I kind of, you know, EDSA is a resort. Uh, we do a lot of work in the resort world and, and I kind of think of like a resort pool deck um, or, you know, a public park in, in looking at both their passive and public spaces and how as landscape architects, we can 
again, take that multi-generational approach to making sure that um, various user groups are, are being addressed and being, being uh, attended to. Uh, Alex, do you, uh, and, and also EDSA, do you revisit your earlier work and um, also the work of a generation ago or two generation ago <clears throat> landscape architects? What do you, um, how do you take that experience when you revisit that, that earlier work? I, I think it's really important uh, to kind of reflect on where you came from. Uh, you know, it helps to shape and grow you and your design philosophies and your and your ways of, of thinking and uh, where you're going, you know, just as quickly as landscape architecture is developing and advancing in technology and design, I think our ability as landscape architects to push the envelope on creativity from what we've learned from our previous projects is is evident and it's right there in front of us. You know, our legacy here at EDSA is important to us. So collaboration is key and, and learning what we can from our peers on past projects um, and learning what we can from ourselves on past projects is, is um, something that we, we do often. We, we really like to study some of our built projects. We call them post-occupancy studies. Um, and it really tells a lot about the success of a project's functionality or durability or flexibility, or even just the success of its use over time. I really think you know, there's constantly new products even coming out. I mentioned earlier that landscape architecture, um, we, we do more than just plants. You know, it's hardscape, it's site furniture, it's lighting. Um, and so going and looking back on how some of those things are um, holding up over time to making sure that if a product is failing or a design is failing, that we're not, you know, regurgitating that and repeating that in, in other instances. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And what about local climates? Um, obviously, those local climates matter and there are then microclimates within particular settings. Can you talk to how these influences um, your Oh, sorry, how these influence your work, I guess, and your projects. Sure. We take a, we take a tremendous amount of pride in, in our ability to travel to our sites, whether they're here in Florida, you know, elsewhere around the country, or, or you know, especially internationally. We think it has a really critical impact in our preliminary, I would say, analysis or, or design process of every single site. There's kind of unique attributes and stuff that as you are able to walk the site, touch and feel it, um, and understanding a little bit of those local climates and microclimates um, are really important. When I travel to sites, uh, some of the things that I'm looking at are topography or the existing tree canopy, adjacent land uses, you know, knowing your neighbors and knowing what some of those things are, 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 really, um, are really important attributes of the site. Um, and it's also, you know, sometimes we understand what the client is trying to do and understand their program, and sometimes we don't. And that really changes the lens in which you look at a site. Um, if you've got the freedom to kind of, you know, create something out of nothing versus kind of having a, a prescribed uh, plan of attack, uh, all impact how we approach every site differently and holistically. Going back to the microclimate um, aspect of it, you know, it says, I think, 
a little bit more than just about the weather, but it's also about the programmability, the opportunities and constraints uh, that, that that site will yield. Right. Alex, uh, you've mentioned in the lead up, listeners, we asked Alex to uh, reference uh, a few sites so he could talk to. Um, I'll, I'll take you to the first one. Is it the Brickle World Plaza, Alex? Yeah, so we started talking a little bit earlier just about kind of the places in between and, and some, of the, some of the importance of just connectivity. And the Brickle World Plaza is a project uh, that we worked on here in Miami, Florida. Um, basically, we took a, you know, existing uh, surface parking lot and con converted it into a public park with, you know, your basic um, site enhancements, you know, sensory landscapes, uh, places for dogs, trees, um, looking at ways to kind of make it a little bit of a respite from the hustle and bustle of the urban core that, that is surrounding it on all four sides. Um, you know, this, this provided a, a really a true green oasis to the city of Miami. Um, but it also invited this, uh, this connectivity and this connection um, to, I guess, you know, the neighboring uh, residents and, and visitors to the city uh, of, the, of the plaza itself. It's a really, it's a really cool project. The next one I'm not even going to try and pronounce, but it's an alley in <laughs> Stockholm in Sweden. Is yeah. Martin Trogzig Grant. Don't even try, Pete. It, it is. It is. <laughs> Pete, that was actually pretty good. Um, you know, <laughs> Don't tell him I, that. <laughs> I have to admit, uh, I've actually never been there. Um, and it's not our project. EDSA didn't design it. Uh, but the reason that I wanted to talk about this is I was, I was actually on a recent trip um, to Prague, um, and I encountered a very similar place. Um, and what it is, is it's this narrow alley. Anyone who's ever been to Prague, um, you kind of understand the, um, the change in elevation from, from the, the, the main streets of the city, and you can quickly be down a hill, you know, three or 400 feet. Um, but the Martin Trasse Grand uh, is the best example of, of what I experienced and it was the coolest thing it was this narrow alley with graffiti all over the walls um, the, the sidewalk couldn't have been more than 18 to 24 inches wide um, and it was lined with people it was from the top to the bottom walking up walking down people are shimmying by each other but what was crazy and, and cool about that is that it was the unexpected um, it was a place that you know and maybe certain cities or certain environments would be deemed undesirable, but this is a this is a destination. It, it's something that simply was just a, a an alley, a, a space between buildings to traverse up and down the side of this hill. And it, you know, it in a way, it's it's kind of a a, a true jewel of landscape architecture. And, and the final one, Alex, the Swan and Dolphin Resort, was that one of your company's projects? And can you explain <clears throat> that one? It was, it, yeah, it was. So the Swan and Dolphin uh, Resort um, is a is a hotel um, near Epcot at the Walt Disney World Resort. Um, this is a project that I had the pleasure and joy of working on, and it was never intended to be just a pedestrian pathway. But um, due to COVID and due to various things, the larger uh, aspect of the project um, had to be shelved for the time being. Um, but the Swan and Dolphin the, the Swan and Dolphin complex uh, was in the middle of and going to continue building a new resort hotel across the street. 
And so uh, the client had asked us to kind of create this um, connect this connection to to link all three hotels together. And the task was simple. The task was um, the task was very direct. To, you know, create a sidewalk. And as landscape architects, we saw an opportunity to really um, upsell this place and create a place where it was special. Um, and there were uh, you know memories, and there were opportunities for um, respite. Uh, you know, when you design and maintain spaces in a way that enhances the user experience, you know, we kind of feel that these in-between spaces can become destinations in and of themselves. And um, it's actually quite interesting. There, there was a podcast, um, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, they were talking about that sidewalk, that, that connection, um, and uh, um, as being a special must-see kind of place um, among the, the Swan and Dolphin property. So it just goes to show that, you know, there's, there's kind of the, the basic ask and as landscape architects, we always take it a step further and tend to push our scope beyond the limits uh, because we, we really, we really truly feel strongly about um, creating those special places. Now, Alex, you're based in Florida and you do many projects in that region. Is there a particular Florida style or are there many? There, there is, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, influences here in Florida that I, I kind of see um, span the broad nature of our profession. Um, there's a lot of Spanish influence down here. Uh, there's a lot of coastal influence. And, and as you get kind of into that Orlando, North Florida area, uh, there's a lot of the old Florida um, kind of influence, which is you know, we're, we're known for oranges and citrus farming and things like that. So you, you tend to see a lot of that come, come through in kind of a playful nature. I can't wait to go there. Um, Alex, landscaping has the potential to uplift uh, areas much quicker than say uh, massive built form changes. Uh, is that a fair comment? I mean, you know, landscaping, some I'm sure some people think it's a quick fix and, you know, as you'll no doubt say, it's a long-term, landscaping is a long-term thing with maintenance and making sure the spaces continue to work. But landscaping has the chance to transform places much quicker. Your thoughts? I agree with you. Um, I actually, for a while, I used to always say that landscape is actually only about 10% of what I do. Um, Cause when you really think about the global, you know, the holistic design approach of a site, um, I kind of liken landscape to the built form as like throw pillows on a couch or curtains over windows. Um, it's something that you can introduce and it can quickly alter the look, feel, scale and place of a space um, adding, you know, kind of immediate color and texture and all of the different things um, so I, I completely agree that, you know, landscaping has an absolutely instrumental um, and immediate impact uh, up, uplifting some of these places um, that we design. I've got a, a tricky one here too, and that is about the different cultural approaches to landscaping. Uh, I, I, Alex, I'm sure you, you've been to Japan and, and how they do the landscaping over there? Uh, I have been to Japan, yes. And and they have got a very probably different approach to landscaping than many other places. Landscaping and culture, um, different cultures approach landscaping in different ways, or am I, or or are we more joining together about a universal experience? A question left field, I know, but any thoughts on that? 
That's a great question. Um, no, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, that's, that's one of the interesting things about our firm and our, our global outreach is that um, we design on, you know, all six continents, all six habitable continents, uh, more or less. And so, so we have, we have to have an understanding of what those cultural um, influences are and respect a lot of what those cultural um, you know, things are from, from a landscape perspective. You know, when you talk about Japan or you talk about you know, England or you talk about you know, French or you talk about in the Middle East, you know, there's, there's history there that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that um, I think will always remain intact. And you see it in a lot of the Japanese botanical gardens and things even you know, here in the States or, or elsewhere. You know, it's, it's really about understanding and incorporating you know, local materials, local flora, local fauna um, and, and kind of really trying to respect some of those um, things that are you know indigenous to the to the place that the that the gardens exist or that the landscape exists. Is it fair to say that you can have a great idea and it can be implemented really really well from a landscape perspective but if the maintenance and renewal um, aspect isn't properly um, considered and thought through that it can be a complete failure? Is this a point that's missed by many? It is. A lot of our clients want the look, you know, of this botanical, lush botanical garden, but they don't want to maintain it. Nobody ever wants to maintain any of it. Um, and it's very expensive to maintain some of these spaces that we design. It's why we, as a, we as, a, as a profession and as landscape architects, we have an obligation to manage our clients' expectations. So I've kind of that's my, re, my reoccurring theme throughout this. But I think that um, there are uh, ways to introduce lower maintenance design strategies, things like xeriscaping or um, making sure that you're using native low watering uh, plants. Um, but again, just we, we just have an obligation to educate our, our um, clients, the pros and cons, and especially when it comes to the cost of maintaining the landscape as designed. So, so that's all part of the project delivery for you, Alex, to to you know, educate the client that um, that this is a you know maybe a, a ten year, twenty year financing of it is a very important aspect. So that's part of your what you do for clients, particularly uh, yes, um, what the the clients that we work with and the projects that we deliver here that is that is a part of what we uh, what we offer to our clients um, and help kind of help maintain that relationship. Um, uh, throughout the duration of the design and the execution and the maintenance of the project. And uh, we're coming to the end, uh, Alex, sadly, of our little podcast. A couple of questions. Um, how do you refresh and relax? And also, have you got any final message to our listeners about, uh, you know, landscape architecture? So maybe first, how do you refresh and relax? And then <laughs> anything extra you'd like to you put in? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I use sports as my avenue to decompress. Um, I'm a big, big soccer player, big golfer, um, and I love to travel, as I mentioned before. Um, there's, uh, I haven't been everywhere, but it's everywhere's on the list. And so that's something that I, I definitely um, spend a lot of time doing. Um, and then, you know, just as just kind of a message to, to people out there, I'm just, you know, really grateful to be, you know, uh, asked to be here. 
uh, I hope I hope that you enjoyed I, our conversation. Oh, you've been terrific, Alex. <laughs> we're really, we're, I think Jess and I want to come and work for EDSA, but uh, <laughs> and we definitely want to come to Florida. But sorry, uh, you, I interrupted you. Sorry. No, no, you're you're always welcome. And when you do make it to Florida, we're 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 happy to uh, we're happy to have you. Uh, you know, happy to have you come visit us here in Fort Lauderdale. When when um, we do our, our first planning exchange world tour, uh, Florida will be first on the list. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. It should be. Um, no, I'm just grateful to both of you. Um, you guys have been wonderful. And um, you know, landscape architecture is something that's a growing profession. We don't we don't have as, e as we don't have it as easy as some um, that not everyone knows what we do. And so um, we're we're constantly on the uh, on the mission to you know advocate and educate for for our profession and, and um, are known and, and uh, respected throughout the industry. So I appreciate you both for having me. Now, now Alex, this is uh, where we come to podcast extra or culture corner, something that you've read, uh, experienced, seen, watched, uh, done that, that might be of interest to our listeners. So I, I actually uh, discovered uh, I think it's on National Geographic, but it's definitely on Disney Plus. is a is a show or a um, an episode called Drain the Oceans, and uh, it's, it's super cool. It it actually explores underwater landscapes uh, beneath the sea to uncover historical events, um, things that um, may have actually contradicted uh, or may have actually happened, which contradicts pop, you know pop popular or contrary belief. Um, and provides insight into what the future may hold uh, with natural disasters. Uh, you know, an example, I guess, of what that specifically is is uh, they they drained um, the Bay of Normandy, um, and so this is you know back in World War II, and, and there was this mis there was this conception about how how the um, uh, how the the attack came in and, and the direction in which they came in and all of this stuff, but they used basically a sonar scanner and scanned the floor of the bay. And what they discovered was there were four times as many um, US tanks that never made it to the shore than what they had actually anticipated. Um, and, and because you know no one's ever, you know, quote unquote, drained the ocean. Um, but there's, there's examples of this all over the world where they study certain historical events, you know, sea battles or pirating in the Caribbean and all of these things that, you know, we think we know, and they, they use uh, kind of a scanning device to un uncover a shipwreck or uncover a battle or uncover something that kind of um, sheds some light on some of it. And it's, it's really fascinating if you're a history buff. Yeah. Well, uh, Alex, I mean, with archeology span and I'm sure with lots of things the you know, new technology is uh, challenging a lot of the, you know, preconceptions of history that, I mean, that's the, the whole, that's what I think the show is all about the how, yep. how technology is uh, uncovering the past that we we don't know yeah exactly exactly yeah now Jess your podcast extra I've actually got two today which is a bit unlike me um, the first one is a movie um so the Melbourne International Film Festival um has just recently come to a close here but um a great film that i saw the lost city of melbourne so um for your background alex uh, melbourne has always been an epicenter for arts and culture and i think it was around um 1850 that really we we sort of became that that place and um 
it was in Melbourne that one of the world's first films was made, um, being the story of the Kelly Gang. And um, I guess coming out of that was the rise of all these um, movie theatres, outdoor cinemas across across the city and some of the inner suburbs. And then um, in the 1950s when Melbourne hosted the Olympics and, and Queen Elizabeth came across, um, we we as Victorians thought that our um, Victorian architecture made us look um, the opposite of a modern city. So a huge demolition blitz occurred. A lot of our beautiful old buildings were um, were demolished and raised over. And um, that included a lot of these beautiful old cinemas and movie theatres. So it's a really beautiful um, sort of archival video movie um, showing all these wonderful photos of Melbourne in its early years and some of the amazing buildings that we that we once had. So, um, and it, it also sort of plays into um, some of the messages that came out of this um, conference that I went to last week for Vipla, who's um, one of our sponsors of the podcast. Um, Kirsten Thompson, who's a, a very well-renowned architect in Melbourne, um, talking about demolition and how demolition of architecture and architectural places and how the starting point should always be to retain and um, use that as your starting point when you're, um, looking at any new project and um, yeah it just got me thinking and it was it was quite sad really the, the whole movie seeing these beautiful places being uh, demolished and um, you know I think they do some interviews in this movie as well about the regret that we as a city had about demolishing some of these places and um, the impact that it sort of had on the city overall so great movie um, The Lost City of Melbourne I think you can still see it online I think you can actually stream it um, through the Melbourne International Film Festival and I think it's also showing at a few cinemas across across Melbourne um, and then the second one Pete is a book um, called The Couple Upstairs which is um, by a um, a podcaster actually who I listen to quite a lot Holly Wainwright and um, really great easy book um, highly recommend how about you, Pete? Uh, and, and Jess, um, Alex, there's a Melbourne in Florida, isn't there? There's a, a city of Melbourne in Florida, I think. <laughs> there is. It's about uh, three hours north of north of me. But I, I kind of want to forget about that and come to Australia. After <laughs> <Jess> is, <laughs> have, have you not been to Australia yet, Alex? Not, not yet. Oh, no, wow. No, no okay. one's been to Australia, Jess. Well, and we look, we're, we're, we're on the other side of the world. We and, look forward uh, to hosting you. And, Thank you. And... Jess, you mentioned the Kelly Gang, um, Alex. Something you probably don't know with Australian history, there was we had our outlaws, just as uh, the states had, you know, Jesse James and Billy the Kid. We had what we what are called here bush rangers, who used to go around uh, and you know do holdups, bank holdups, uh, uh, you know, robbery theft, and there was sort of good bush rangers and there was bad bush rangers, but. Uh, and I've come across a great website. I've always been intrigued by uh, bush rangers, Alex, um, since I was a kid. And there's lots of places near us where they used to roam and, and uh, you know, uh, before everything was civilised. So I've come across a great website, a guide to Australian bush ranging. And I'm hoping, Jess, that we can somehow get to the uh, producer of that on our podcast. Uh, I'm working at angles. So... <laughs> so Alex, when, when you come to Australia, we'll, um, we'll we'll take you around and show you our. There's lots and lots of fantastic old buildings still left. Regard, you know, don't don't let Jess put you off. It's um, 
Uh, it's, it's, it hasn't been obliterated. It's a lovely place. But thank you so much today, Alex, for your time and, and your wonderful thoughts on an explanation of landscaping. Uh, I really think our listeners will have enjoyed this. So, and uh, all the best. And we look forward to meeting one day. Same here. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm, I know, uh, I know I'm excited as well to kind of share this and, and, uh, and, and celebrate kind of our discussion today uh, when the opportunity arises. Good on you, Alex. Thanks, Thanks Alex. Much appreciated. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcast, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast. 